While she was born into the business as the child of television legends, she has most notably made her mark on stage with roles in the national tour of Seesaw, the Los Angeles Company of Vanities, the original production of their playing our song, the Broadway Company of Lost and Yonkers, and the West End premiere of the musical The Witches of Eastwick. Most recently, she created and appeared in New York and Miami in a full-length concert she devised entitled Babalu. Welcome to the American Theatre Wing's Downstage Center. I'm Howard Sherman, Executive Director of the American Theatre Wing, and I'm very pleased to spend an hour with my friend and American Theatre Wing trustee, Lucy Arnaz. Thank you. Sounds nice, trustee, doesn't it? Well, it is nice. You know, the funny thing being, you're a trustee who we've had trouble booking on this show. <laughs> I have a very busy life, Howard. Well, I'm just everywhere. Well, you do. Now, <laughs> you're back... Um, from Miami, yeah. having just done Babalu a week or two ago, yes. you'd done it first for the 92nd Street Y. Where did you do it down in Miami? At the gorgeous night center, the Adrian Arsht, the night rehearsal hall. Well, it's rehearsal hall. It's a recital, not rehearsal. Recital hall, thank you very much. At the Adrian Arsht Center in the center of Miami. Gorgeous space, beautiful. And imagine a Babalu show. Latin music with that Miami audience in the summertime. Hello. Well, let's talk to people. Let's explain what the show was. I said it was of your devising. Yeah, and since we usually talk about Broadway and theater here, it is not a Broadway show. It's not a book show. It's a concert uh, celebrating the music of Desi Arnaz and his orchestra. And it meant a lot to me, not just because he's my father and I'm celebrating him because he's my dad, but this is great music. And I started listening to it after he died and I found some tapes of these rare performances. And along with, you know, a, f- a few old photographs, there were 22 boxes of these charts, these arrangements to these great songs. And I've had them for many, 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 many years until I finally gave them to the Library of Congress. We started talking to uh, Lyric and Lyricist series over at 92nd Street Y when I was there doing a Gershwin tribute. And they said, how would you like to do an evening of a tribute to Latin music seen through the music of your dad? And I was overwhelmed. I just thought that's the most amazing idea I ever heard and I want to do it. What was the process of going through the music? First of all, you had to get the charts or go down to the Library of Congress, but you had to – Look yep. through all of that material. Yeah, I took my musical director of 22 years, Ron Abel. I said for this, he will be called Ronaldo Abeles, <laughs> but he's just Ron Abel, the, the Juban. We we're, we're made him a Juban. And, uh, and we went down to the Library of Congress and spent almost three days there from dawn till dusk. We didn't know it was dusk because you're in a windowless <laughs> basement for three days. But it, we spent a lot of hours going through every box, touching and looking at every single a piece of every arrangement, so every part, that every tuba part, and every what key is it in? Is there a who's playing the melody? Where you know? Do we? Does it? Is it a full chart? Some of them didn't even say trombone; they said Ralph, <laughs> because they were like from the original Desi Arnaz days, you know. And and he was very it's small band then, but the majority of the arrangements were fifteen, sixteen piece orchestra arrangements with violins, harp, the whole nine yards. And we culled it down to about 70 that we thought we could use without rearranging them and spending any money to reorchestrate. And then when we knew who was going to be in the show, we, you know, cut it down to about 40 tunes, a two-hour show. And we got our first choice, first call that I made. Well, it was an email, but the first actual person I attempted to ask, I didn't think I'd ever get him, and it was Raul Esparza. And he said yes. He said yes with tears in his eyes. He wanted so badly to do this. And my great friend and phenomenal singer-dancer Valerie Pettiford danced the show and sang it brilliantly. And me, my brother uh, Desi came and played percussion. We had two fabulous dancers. It just ended up being the most amazing evening. And then we started to get other offers to take it other places. So, Well, I'm curious. The 92nd Street Y has – a certain audience. Right. It's very Upper East Side, New York. Mm-hmm. Um, and Lyricist series has mm-hmm. a very sustained audience with certain expectations and how things work. That's right. But then you went down, as you say, to Miami. So what was it like performing the show in the two different places? Almost identical. And that was amazing to me because I was actually afraid of the yeah, I don't, want to, I don't want to categorize them as, you know, but an elderly crowd, primarily Jewish, from a lot of, you know, New Jersey people in, who in, – here, here, here in New York. Here in New York. Mm-hmm. Who, you could have been talking about <laughs> Miami. Well, I could have been. That's right. <laughs> needed to clarify. That's absolutely true. I could have been except that at this time of the year in July, it's very hot in Miami and the snowbirds have come back. 
So the the people for that the are cool down, yeah, New York the cool breezes of here, and and so the people who were there were primarily the local Miami, the diehards, and a lot of them are the Latinos, you know? And But the, the thing that amazed me was that I didn't think the show would go over that well here. I kind of just did it because they offered it to me, and I would have done it if four people showed up. We sold out every night, and people were screaming, and the little walkers in the back of the auditorium were rocking, you know? It was amazing. And down there, it was amazing for a whole other reason because it was their – it's their story, you know? And, and Raul Esparza – is a, a Miami native, and he told such great stories about the Cuban-American experience and Cubans relating to this country for the first time, what his parents went through, much the same way I'm sure my father would have if he'd have been able to talk to those people. So it was a little bit of magic, hmm. really. And at this point, is there more work to be done in the show? Is the show set? Are you – Yeah, no, no, because it's, it's, it's like my nightclub act. It's never done. I don't, I don't want it to be. Mm-hmm. It depends on where I'm playing, how long I think the show should be for that spot, for that spot, the audience. We have a good library of songs we like to choose from. And actually, there's songs we could put into the show we didn't do at the library – I mean at the Lyric and Lyricist or down in Miami. Uh, and there's songs we can take out. We're now talking to the Supper Club people about actually setting it down here for several months, not in a traditional theater atmosphere, but in that club atmosphere, much like what my father had hmm. when he first was doing his band, right? And that would be interesting because people would have meals and they'd sit at tables and you could actually climb down into the audience with them and do a conga line if you wanted to. It's a smaller uh, stage and we have to reconfigure stuff and I have to rethink if they've already had dinner and they've been there for an hour and they've had a couple of drinks, do I want to give them a two-hour show? Mm, maybe not. There's also no curtain in that space. And there's a wonderful reveal that happens at the top of that show mm-hmm. with some very special stuff. How would I do that? So I have to Tommy tune myself into this space. If I, you know what I'm saying? <laughs> I got to think out of the box a little here. But the space is so great that we're going to try to make that work. One thing, other thing I want to ask about Babalu before we go on is having seen it at 92nd Street Y, you, as you said, your brother is in it as a percussionist. Sometimes. He might not be in it here. Right. But yeah. when he did it, um, at 92nd Street Y and presumably down in, in Miami. Yes, he was in Miami. I was struck by the fact that for the first act, if you didn't know he was there, he really laid back and he's given a spotlight moment in act two, more or less, but it's not a showcase suddenly yeah. for the return well, of we Desi ch- Arnaz Jr. to the stage. You know why? He didn't want to play the whole show. He's the no man. We call him the no man. And, and we run Desi Lu too, my, my parents, you know, company with their likenesses and images. And he says, Lucy, you're the yes person. I'm the no person. You know, she always says no, always. And you have to talk Desi into it. So he said, no, I, I don't think I can do that. I don't want, I, I can't, I don't want to learn that many songs. The way I got him to come to New York was saying, how about if you only play the second act? It's not as many songs. And and it'll just give you feature stuff. Yes. Well, then during rehearsals, he was there the whole week. He heard every song and he couldn't wait to get a percussion thing and play the congas, play the this. So then I thought, well, now I don't have it set up to put a spotlight on you in the first act. You're going to have to hide. So he hid, basically. <laughs> Please. He trust. did. I mean, you didn't he notice hid. him if you didn't know he was a there. A lot of people knew it. But, any, but so anyway, su- suffice it to say, by the time we got to Miami, I said, you're going to be introduced as the third person in the show to be introduced. Trust me. And so he was playing the whole show this time. I gave him a spotlight in the first act, two songs in the second act, and he played the whole show. You didn't actually direct the show yourself. You had someone else who staged it, correct? Well, I did – But I wanted to have a third eye and I Mm -hmm. asked our very good friend and a sensational choreographer named Ramon Del Barrio to come in. And at the Y, I had too many jobs over there. When they hire you, they need a host, they need a writer, they need a performer, they need an artistic director. And I had to be all four of those things. And I thought, I don't also want my name to be on there as director. That's just stupid. So Ramon came in and staged and directed the show, blah, 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 with – Ron and I, we sat together. We actually, the three of us, created what the show would be. When we got down to Miami, we decided from now on we should decide who's the director and who's the stage and choreographer. So it's Ramon Del Barrio, staged and choreographed by Ramon and directed by me. Did you like 
putting together a whole show? Loved. Is this the first time? I mean, you do your you know, cabaret I, yes. show all the time, but it's that's not, a and show it's not for always you to cabaret. Perform. Sometimes it's big, huge, you mm. know, so it's anything concerts from concerts and, from 60 pieces to 12 pieces, 14, 20 to four to two to a piano. But here you weren't just you know. choosing material for yourself. No, and it was, it was, it's even better when it's not just me. Although I always put it together as if, I'm the, I'm the audience. That's all. I think about what does the audience want to hear? What's a good show? What should it start with? It's got to have a pace. It should The ballads shouldn't be too many and they should come in the right spot. It's something I love doing. It's, story, it's storytelling. It's mm-hmm. the same as editing a documentary. It really is just storytelling and, and getting lots of good information. That's what lyrics give you and having a, a good balance of what comes after what. And Ron's fabulous at this. We've been doing this together for all these years. Between the two of us, we sort of he knows what I'm thinking. I know what he's thinking. He makes up for what I don't know, vice versa. And Ramon has a wonderful spirit and can and can flesh out any little ideas that we had by saying this is how that could work. I think this could happen there. Plus he brought these fabulous dancers into it. And we had two people even more amazing down in Miami, original Cuban people who were <laughs> scary good. So, yeah, I love the whole directing thing. I mean, as much as I love acting, if I never got a chance to act again, don't let that ever happen. But if it it should happen for some reason, I would be very happy being a, a director. I would. Let's go back now because I've already alluded to your parents. We've mentioned your father by name. We should actually say your mom was Lucille Ball. Um, you grew up completely – Around the business, you you there was no avoiding it in your household, and mm. and both of your parents were groundbreaking in so many ways. Um, some of your dad's innovation on television, people don't even realize that your father invented the three camera sitcom. He and his people, as we say, it's it's remarkable. Um, I found a comment, and I found a fact that I thought was very interesting. Uh, one was cited that you decided to act. Around the age of fifteen, uh, and maybe it was maybe the timing's up. But when you saw Angela Lansbury in Maine, I had decided I liked acting a little bit before that because I was already on my mother's show when I was fifteen. But when I decided that I knew what I wanted to do with my life in general, it was when I saw Angela in Maine. That's when I said theater, musical theater. That oh, that's who I am. That's what I do. You know how you say I don't know what I do. I'm just kind of doing this for fun. What is it that I can make a living at? And it was only my first year on Here's Lucy. And when I saw Angie, I just said, oh, 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 that's me. I belong there. What was it like? I and mean, what was the process of your mother putting you on the TV show? Was it something you wanted or something you were told you're going into the business like like the Nelson no, boys? No, ne- neither, neither one. It was somewhere in the middle. She had been watching me grow up loving putting on plays, whether it was in my backyard with a little 8 by 12 inch stage that I got given one Christmas because she knew I liked to fool around with that stuff. I picked a high school because it had the best dramatic department. She came to see me in certain plays. And it was a it was a high school, Immaculate Heart High School, all-girl Catholic high school in Hollywood. How can that necessarily be a great drama? It had the best drama department. Oh, my God. And they were reviewed by Variety in those days, literally. That's how well-known they were for what they would do. How much of that was because of the quality of the work and how much was that because it was the children of stars Probably going to both. The high school? No, there weren't very many of us. Really, oh, really, there weren't. No, Mary Tyler Moore was a graduate of that school and Pat Carroll and a few other people. I think maybe there was some connection with Variety in the local papers and they just did it for fun or something. But hmm. we got a couple of reviews. It was fantastic. Anyway, I learned my craft. My mother came and saw me and she knew I was kind of serious about that. And my brother had been with Dino, Desi, and Billy, and he had this sort of, you know, showbiz thing going on too. And so when she'd done enough, six episodes of the second series she did, that's enough for syndication. You can quit. And she thought, I'm either going to quit or I will do a third series similar to these, but we'll start again and we'll change the plot. And how would you two like to play my children? And Desi was noncommittal about it. It's like, I don't know, you know. Why would I want to do that? And I was very scared, actually, because I had a plan. I was going to go to Immaculate Heart. I was going to graduate. I was going to do really well in my little theater classes. And then I was hopefully going to get into Northwestern and study theater and become a theater person. And I didn't want this to mess that up. I was afraid I wasn't ready. I'll go on a TV show. They'll say she's terrible and I'll never get another chance They'll because I've been in front of millions of people and they're going to say she's terrible. So – 
my mother said, well, it might not work that way. <laughs> what, if, what if you're not terrible? I said, yeah, but what are you going to do if I am? And she said, all right, tell you what. If it turns out that the word of mouth or the reviews or whatever is, this is a mistake. You shouldn't have brought these kids on. I hear what you're saying. I will write you out. I'll figure out a way to send you away to boarding school or whatever, and you don't have to continue. I won't embarrass you on the show. Why would I do that? And I said, if you're serious and the writers will do that, then I will give it a shot because it could be good experience. Well, clearly, it was tremendous experience. It was six years of the best training ever. From age 15 to 21. Yeah. Pretty remarkable. Now, it's interesting that during sometime during that period, it seems, Vivian Vance mm-hmm. – uh, said to you, don't get stuck on TV. That's right. That's exactly what right. What did she mean by that? She had been a theater person. She was discovered doing Voice of the Turtle in San Diego. She loved the theater. She was a dramatic actress as well as a comedian, and she was well-respected. And then she got this fantastic break, and she got onto this new TV show called I Love Lucy and became Ethel Mertz. Very hard for Ethel Mertz, even after only 179 episodes of I Love Lucy, to go back to places like you know, San Diego, the Old Globe or someplace and do Voice of the Turtle. It was – she was typecast as Ethel Mertz and she did not go back to the theater on her hiatuses and on her summer vacations and whatnot. She kind of let it drop and she warned me. She said, don't let this happen to you when you're on vacation. What, what do you do on your hiatus? And I started listing, oh, I go to Hawaii. I go to Mexico. She said, oh, no, 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 no. You have got to get yourself back on the stage. Let people know that you're serious about the theater and so, I did. So – how did your first theater opportunity come about? Right after she said that, I went home. I made one phone call to my then friend manager agent who was a friend of my mother's who had decided to help me by being a manager. So I wasn't always talking to my stepfather, my aunt and my mother about business. <laughs> Make sure I'm getting paid. And I said, I want to do I want to do theater. So my vacation is, you know, June 1st through whatever. And I want to audition. I want to get some theater. So he got me my first audition, my real audition, for the part of Sally Bowles in Cabaret at San Bernardino Civic Light Opera. And it would appear you got that. I got the part. But you know what I got to say? They well, – now I understand how this stuff works. I thought, boy, was I good. I think I was OK. I think I was OK. I can sing in pitch. Um, I was a TV name. I was on a top 10 TV show. You know how they cast. They want people who draw people into the theater. I didn't know that then. But I don't care. I got a, I got a great part and I worked at it really hard. I, I think it turned out pretty well. You know, it was a good start and uh, that led to other summer stock, the John Kenley circuit for years, which was a huge fun thing to do to learn your craft and work with other great stars. Well, you say learn your craft. At any point along here, did you have formal training? Oh, I went to HB Studios for a couple of months, I would say, when I was in New York right after Seesaw. And uh, Michael Bennett had told me, now you got to come. you got to live in New York. You can't live in California. You can't do TV shows that are, you know, you can't go on talk shows unless you have something important to promote. Don't just go on to chit-chat. You mustn't do that. Stop with the game shows. What? <laughs> what? I can't even do $25,000 Pyramid. I really love that. No. He said, if you want people to take you seriously as a theater performer, you have to act like one. He's, and this is really funny what he said. He said, Fonzie will never get cast in a Broadway show. Shows you how different things were in 1975 than they are today. Now, today, Paris Hilton could get a Broadway show. You know what I mean? It doesn't matter. But it, his point was not wrong because Henry Winkler's first Broadway show, um, which I believe was Neil Simon's The Dinner Party, was something like you know it was a good fifteen years after the end of Happy Days. But I don't I don't know it. that that had anything to do with someone not wanting to hire a TV star right. nowadays. As you know, I mean, I'm saying bigger the name, right. the better. It's completely different. Michael was right then. But anyway, so that's what I did. I moved to New York. I got an apartment. I didn't move totally. I kept my little house in Los Angeles, but I got an apartment in the city. I enrolled in HB Studios. And, and the crazy thing that happened was I was still a working actor. I was still doing specials for Craft Music Hall and, and being flown to Hawaii to do with this and, and a guest star on Marcus Welby and who knows what, right? And I would have a scene partner like, Howard, you're my scene partner this week. And, I, and then I would get a job and I would leave and so I couldn't do the scene. And then somebody else would be my scene partner. Finally, no one wanted to work with me as a scene partner because she's not here. She never comes to the thing. 
So I felt so embarrassed. I literally left. So I've worked privately with people to get ready for certain parts. And um, primar- the best the best acting teacher I had, though, literally, was a combination of David Craig teaching. David Craig was a wonderful on singing on stage. It was the name of his book was On Singing on Stage. It's acting for the musical theater. What you do with a song. What are you thinking about? What is going through your mind? How do you fill the air in a song? And even though it was a singing class, it wasn't about singing. It was about what you your your subtext. That was a fantastic class. And I I studied with him just before I got the seesaw audition, and I'm sure he had a lot to do with my getting it. And the second best person I think I've ever worked with, believe it or not, is my husband, Larry Luckenbill. Wonderful director, wonderful dramaturge, terrific, terrific acting teacher. Just how to be real, how to think your thoughts, what the thought process is like. And I did a lot of growing up as an actor once I met Larry. Although I tend to be rigidly chronological, mm-hmm. this this brings me to an interesting question. You began working on television with your mother and your stepfather. You mention obviously that you've just that you've worked a number of times with Larry. Right. You have also now acted with your daughter Catherine. Yes. Is there special advice, special caution? about when you work with family. Oh, well, yeah, I guess having had that experience with my mother who was as big as it gets and uh, I I was I had virtually no real professional training other than my school training. Um you have to be very careful as the person giving advice because the the if you're in front of other people at the time it's very hard for a family member to take direction or, God forbid, criticism of any kind without being so humiliated by it. And, um, you know, I saw my mother had her good days and her bad days about that. Uh, most of the time she she would tell me things to the side and she didn't tell me a lot. Believe it or not, she left it up to me to listen to the director, whoever the director was, and I'm sure she had her eye on me. Um, but I try really hard to wait and not give my daughter too much instruction right off the bat. I, If I think that there's something better that can come out of what she's doing, um, I'll let her go through some stuff for a while and then say, I have a couple ideas about that scene if you want to hear them, but you don't have to listen. And but isn't that sort of like saying, I want to tell you something. You know, you, you've sort of dropped the bomb by yes, saying, I want to tell and I could be wrong something. too. Mm-hmm. And I let her know that. It's like just because I'm older and I've done more shows doesn't mean I'm totally right here. But she comes to me for advice all the time. So I'm, I go – it's kind of an assumption of mine that she wants to learn. But even when they say that, it's still hard. And plus I don't know that it's always the right thing to do. Maybe you should just let it, let it happen on its own. You and know? then with Larry, you've put yourself in the situation of yeah. being directed by Larry. Yes, I mean, yes. where it is his job. To, well, to, he's never actually directed me in oh, a play. Yeah, I, oh, no, it's just that we've worked together. It, we've worked together, and we talk but about what we do. I see. And, and, I, and we, I'd bring my work home to him when I'm preparing for a play or a movie part or whatever. And his ideas are amazing. He wrote everything I said in the Jazz Singer. Hmm. He rewrote my entire part and then worked with me on how it should be because it was so badly written. And they were they were so up in the air when I showed up. They had gotten a brand new director. They had you know fired three people, and it was like I said I had a couple of things I'd like to change in this scene. Richard Fleischer looked at the scene, went, "That's terrific, print it, make copies," and he didn't even ask who wrote it. <laughs> so I just kept doing it. And there is this other guy, Olivier, over there. Yeah, poor <laughs> Sir Lawrence. Larry should have rewritten his stuff too. <laughs> Now, you've already mentioned it a few times, certainly in terms of a major appearance, this national tour of Seesaw was certainly a big break and you've already dropped Michael Bennett's name. (laughs) How did you come to get that? Uh, Well, after I had done, I'd say, three or four summer stock shows. Let's see. I did uh, the cabaret show. I did um, Once Upon a Mattress for John Kenley. Um, little Abner, if you can believe it, playing Daisy May. And I, aud- I had an opportunity to audition for the national tour and to fly to New York. I worked with David Craig on my audition and, uh, I auditioned at the, the Long Acre Theater 
in the it, the wonderful old-fashioned way of auditioning, which will never be again, I'm afraid to say, where you actually walk out on a bare stage with a light bulb and there are people in the dark, thank you very much, sitting in a theater seat, you know, and that you can't really see. So you can have your fourth wall and you can use your imagination and become the character. And I sang uh, a couple of songs. I, th- I thought I was told to bring uh, a ballad type of song because they knew I was from a comedy show and they wanted to see if I had the other side. So David provided a, a song for me, um, which off the top of my head, I'm not going to come to me, so I won't waste time trying to think of it. And then I read a scene. And um, everybody was very kind. <laughs> I remember one thing is that David Craig used to say these wonderful stories about all these people that he knew in the business and he was, he was very um, adamant about certain things, David. He was, he was sort of a, a little bit um, – what, what's the word? Where he's just kind of not, he's not English. He's just pretending to be in that kind of way. Do you know? And he was married to Nancy Walker. I mean, come on. Anyway, and David would tell this story about how you must never, when you audition for a composer, please never choose a song that they have written unless they specifically request you to do so because there's no way you could possibly put it over to their liking. Right. So then he chooses a, a Dorothy Field song for me to sing. And I said, but David, he said, he says, yes, I, I know, but, but this is different. I know Dorothy. She's a close friend. And then the second thing you must never do is ever, ever change a lyric in one of the composer's lyrics after you're auditioning for them. And he proceeded to change the lyrics in the song because they were closer to the Gittle Mosca lyric, Gittle Mosca character. And he said, no, no, it's, it's fine. Lucy, when, please, when you're finished singing it, just say to Dorothy that You've been studying with David and that David Craig said that he knew that you would know why this was okay in this particular situation. (laughs) This is what he made me do. And so I finished my audition and I thought it was okay. And they they start that mumbling down there, you know. In the dark. And so while that's going on, you just stand there looking nervous. And and I took that opportunity to put my hand, you know, over my eyes and try to see. And I said, "Um, Miss, Miss Fields, are you out there? And I heard this. Yes. And I said, oh, Miss Fields, I have love for you from David Craig. And he said to um, tell you that he knew that it would be okay with you if I sang that song and if I just tweaked those lyrics just a tiny little bit because of this part. And there was this big silence. And then she said, did he? (laughs) 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 Oh, my God. I thought I've lost this whole part. David, I'll kill you. Anyway, I went home and told that I had lost the part, that I didn't get the part. And I, I had the same look on my face that you have right now. And I thought, no, no, no. Oh, no, 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 no. Gittle Mosca, that is me. I can, nobody can do this better than me. And I found out why. They said, well, we don't know if she can really belt. I said, what? You told me to sing a ballad. I could have belted 16 songs. Are we crazy? Oh, I have to audition again. I have to audition again. They know they're all gone. It's Thanksgiving weekend. You can't. So I said, you've got to get me another audition. And that, I've never been like that since. Never been this bold and audacious since. But I said, no, no, this is wrong. So finally, Cy Coleman, who I knew when I was a child because he had written Wildcat for my mother. And I sort of knew him, but he didn't really know me as a person. He decided that he was going to be out in Los Angeles in two weeks and he would see me again if I insisted, which I did. And he came to hear me sing and I sang three belter songs in a row. I was starting on my fourth song when he stood up off the couch and went, OK, you got the part. <laughs> <laughs> so from the world of weekly television, mm-hmm. now you're doing a national tour. Was it longer sit-downs or was it a week here and a week there? It was, it was usually two weeks. Some were weeks. They were not one-nighters. Mm-hmm. Some were four weeks. We were in right. Los Angeles and San Francisco. You know, places were longer. And uh, six months of that, it was phenomenal. Tommy right. Toon and John Gavin and myself and Michael Bennett's direction and choreography, Bob Avian. It was mm-hmm. amazing. But certainly a different kind of performing because oh, – yeah. A very sustained run. Certainly, mm-hmm. I would assume your your longest run in any show up to that point. Oh, whereas a week or two, yeah, shows. right. And Summer stock is usually a week and a week and a week, and you're done. So, so along the way, were you finding 
yourself and the character at the same time? Was there – because when you're out on tour, it's not that Michael Bennett was with you in every city. No, but he would come visit and I learned some amazing things from him in in not such easy ways as anybody who's ever worked with Michael can tell you. I think he was one of the all-time great geniuses that ever walked the theatrical world. But um, I was getting pretty cocky because it's a really funny show, brilliantly written. It says it's written and conceived and directed by Michael Bennett, uh, but it was from a Michael Stewart book originally, which he condensed, and then Neil Simon came in and punched up all the jokes, Michael told me, and Neil said yes, that he did do that. So it's a very, very funny show, and about three months into the run, Michael came to visit us somewhere, wherever I was, and I was so happy he was there that night because... Well, they didn't, they didn't tell me he was there until after the show, and I went, oh, yes, good, great, because it was one of those perfect nights and laughs everywhere. And he came backstage, and I had a couple people in my dressing room, and he asked them to leave, and he shut the door, and he said, you were the worst of Lainey Kazan, who was the original Gittle before Michelle Lee. You're the worst of Michelle Lee, the worst of Patty Carr, who was her understudy. What did you think you were doing? Do you think this is a comedy? Is that why you know everything is going to be funny? And you've got – I was devastated. I was d- like a limp rag. I-, I tried not to cry in front of him. You're going to come back in here tomorrow morning. I'm going to work with you and John and Tommy and we're going to work and we're going to take away all the improvements and you're going to find out what – he was so mean. I went home and didn't sleep a wink all night. I cried all night long. How could I have been that bad? All he really was trying to fix were one or two moments. The next day, we literally worked on two places in the show where I was anticipating the joke because there were so many good jokes that after a while, you start to know that here comes the place where the joke is going to be and you stop being very vulnerable and real with it. And and even though there's always going to be a bunch of jackasses that will laugh. I've learned that since when people come back, they oh, but people laugh. And I said, no, darling, there were 700 people in the audience, 20 laughed. The other ones were sitting there going, and they weren't connecting with you. There's a big difference. So I learned my lesson and I knew exactly how those things happen and I try never to let that happen again. It's hard too. Let's jump ahead. Certainly, we've referenced the jazz singer, which came between the tour of Seesaw, and then your – is this actually your Broadway debut they're playing our song? Yes, it was. So how did you get the role in their playing our song? You've already mentioned Neil Simon, who was the book writer. Right. Um, Marvin Hamlish did the score. Um was this something you had to go out for? Or was this something that came after oh, you? Oh, yeah. Well, no, I did. I absolutely I had to audition for it like about 300 other people, I think. I was the first person, I think, or at least the first couple of people, the first day of auditioning, one of the first people they saw. And I waited three months to hear. They auditioned everybody in, in Los Angeles. They had auditions in Los Angeles, in New York. Blah, blah, blah. I mean, I was hearing through the grapevine that Cher got the part. Bette Midler was doing it. You know, it, I was crying. And again, it was one of those parts where I just would wake up in the middle of the night and go, oh, God, no, I got yeah, – nobody can – I got to have that. That's just me. It's just – it's one of those parts, you know. But what happened was um, I guess from Seesaw, I, I did a couple of other plays. In the meantime, I think I did Mac and Mabel in between that um, for Jerry Herman and again with Tommy Toon and you know my <laughs> past better than I do now. You've got the <laughs> list. But I was doing Annie Get Your Gun at Jones Beach. The summer of 1978, which was great fun, outdoors the whole summer, singing in Ethel Merman's keys. Uh, and during that time, I guess, you know, you're here, you're in the lo- local New York area and I was asked to come My or my agent begged and pleaded and I got an audition and I prepared an audition and I went to um, – I remember where – which theater it was but Ain't Misbehavin was playing there and uh, I auditioned for Neil Simon and Marvin and, and Carol, I believe – and I, all I remember about it was that I'm playing a lyricist and, and in real life I am a lyricist. I do write some of my own stuff. So I chose a song that I had written so that they wouldn't know it. You know, be Clearly nobody else would come in with that clearly song. Clearly nobody else would have come in with that song. And I proceeded to forget my words. <laughs> I don't know if that's better or worse than changing well, Dorothy Fields. Well, it's very Sonia Walsk. I'll tell you that. It's mm-hmm. very, apparently it's very Sonia Walsk. And I said – I don't remember what I said. But I tried to make a joke out of it and I started again and then I read the scene. And at the end of the audition, 
Neil Simon came up on the stage and I thought he was going to hit me. I didn't know what – I've never seen somebody come up on the stage before. You know, it was like, and, I was like, uh, and I was sitting on this little chair and he took my two hands and pulled them up to him and kissed them. And he said, you're such a breath of fresh air. And I thought, well, that's such a nice way to kiss off somebody because you're not going to get this part. <laughs> and I waited and don't you know, got it. Who knew hmm. why, but I got it and it was thrilling. Now, I know you've remained friends over the years, but I have to ask, working with Robert Klein, at that point, primarily known as a stand-up comedian, trained at the Yale School of Drama, yes. musically talented, but – what was the dynamic of working with someone coming out of that world yeah. and you coming with your set of experiences? Yeah, I, I loved him. I mean, he made me laugh so hard that it was hard to rehearse. And he was – I don't know how he would go home at night and still have a voice because he would sing all day, talk all day. And in between, while we were resting or taking a five, he'd be doing shtick with people, you know, riffing on the politics of the day. And very funny guy, just a very funny guy. However, we started to clash a little bit once we got on stage together after the run was going for three or four months because, just like you said, he's a stand-up comic. He doesn't like doing the same thing every night. And he started to, like, you know, bucket the reins a little bit. And it was hard for him to really want to just play the scene. It is a two-character play. And to play the scene with that other person that's on stage and not make it about your audience because as a stand-up, you're all about your audience. And he didn't like to work on stuff. I mean I'm one of those people that as long as I've got another night to do it, I want to see if we've gotten everything that's right out of this play. And if we feel like something has drifted, like the Michael Bennett story, if it's starting to drift into another area, I want to try to get it back. you know. And Robert was not interested. It was like, honey, we're selling out. They love it. Talk to you tomorrow. And so that – we had a, a real friction going on there for a while. It's um, – since we grew up, had children, have lived our lives and worked together, seen each other a lot over the years, we're tremendous friends to this day. And I respect him completely. And he started to trust me a little bit. You know, like she's not trying to change. She's not trying to fix me. She's just trying – that's what you do. And I grew up a little bit too and stopped trying to put my nose where it doesn't belong. Hmm. Now, everything we've talked about thus far is musical, and mm. I certainly skipped over an earlier significant credit, which was perhaps one of the first plays you did, yeah. but Vanities, Vanities, the West Coast oh. production of Vanities yeah. um, with a uh, very nice cast, Sandy yeah. Duncan and Stockard Channing. Right. Um, was that the first play, major play that you'd done? I'm trying to think. Play, play. Was it the first play? Um, yeah, I think maybe it was. I think maybe it was. So without – I mean you'd always had music to carry you through parts mm -hmm. of the show. Mm -hmm. Doing a totally dramatic piece, was that an adjustment? No. You know, it's funny. I guess it helped to be on television and be in a three-camera show with an audience because even though they were little half-hour vignettes, it's like a play. You know, you got a script and there's a story and you got to learn your lines, memorize them, do them in front of an audience. And we did these little plays all the time. So, And Vanities is, I would say, first and foremost, a comedy even though it's a dramedy and it has a dark side. It had music that started each and every scene and it was very tongue-in-cheek, you know, a good way to, to start into theater. And at the time, I didn't know Sandy and I didn't know Stockard and the three of us became instant friends and we are to this day. We are like those kids, those three best friends. They're, ama they're amazing ladies. And it's funny too because Stockard uh, did the Grease movie that I was going to do and I couldn't do because I was booked to do a play. Then she followed me into there playing our song and we've, and I followed Sandy into my one and only. It's, we've had this connection all our lives. And yet you don't normally say when one thinks of a type – the three of you don't exactly line up. No, that's why we were good for that play. Right. Because they were three completely different types. of, And I, I totally am Kathy, who I played, you know, the organizer and the one who has to have lists of everything. That's me. <laughs> I'm totally that person. Sandy was very much like Joanne. And Stockard is, is very Stockard. I mean, that, that Stockard was Mary. She was totally Mary. Mm -hmm. Now, I hope what I read was 
correct, but if it was, it's surprising. Did you actually turn down City of Angels or did you just turn down I auditioning? I turned down auditioning, but it, they made it sound like you have a very good chance because right after they're playing our song, uh, you know, not long after mm-hmm. they're playing our song, I'd done a few other touring companies in the meantime, but and it was Size Show and it was David Zippel and they made it sound like you are in first contention for this part. You need to come back to New York and audition. And I had just moved my family. Lock, stock, and barrel out to Los Angeles. Did I just say Los Angeles? Come back to New York. Is that what I said? Yes. Mm-hmm. Anyway, but come back to New York from Los Angeles. And I just couldn't imagine. I said, if I get this part, I just can't do that. I had young children. I had just put them into school out there. It would just be so incredibly disruptive. I just couldn't imagine. See, that's that's the kind of crazy decisions you end up having to make when you've got family and you're trying to be in this business. And sometimes they're gut-wrenching decisions like that. If it had come two months earlier, I might have said, yeah, sure. Hmm. It was really funny how that happened. But there you go. You had the opportunity and, and my timing may be a little off on all of this. But then where did the opportunity to do Lost in Yonkers come? Because City of Angels and Lost in Yonkers yeah. weren't so far apart. Right. Well, I was in L.A. until after my mother passed away. And I stayed to finish up her estate. And then I came back nine, the late ninety, late, late 1990. And um, I had been to see Lost in Yonkers just prior to that at some point when it was I saw Mercedes in it. And I sent Neil a letter just from the bottom of my heart how brilliant this play was. And I said, this is the one, Neil, because when I, I got to know him pretty well during their playing our song. And, and you know, he'd always said it's funny how he's never really been rewarded for that kind of work and he doesn't get the awards. And I said, no, this is this is the one. This is the one. This is the big one. And he did. He got the Pulitzer. He got the, you know, this was the big one. And when they were ready to change cast, I guess first I was not available. Jane um, Kaczmarek. Kaczmarek, thank you was in right after Mercedes and I and he ended up asking if I would replace Jane and you know somebody said oh third replacement I said shut up 15th replacement I don't care I want to do that part I would kill to do that part and I raced into that show I had just now moved back to New York I was just perfect timing and I, I was renovating my house up in the country to live up in the country with my kids and we had a rental house up there I didn't care I commuted every night from Katona, New York, to the sit every day for rehearsal and every night for performance for pff, lots of months. Over so, many who did months you get to do it with? Who were the other? Anne Jackson, mm. and um, uh, well, Kevin Spacey was in it for a little while, and then he left. And there were um, uh, Tim Jerome after that, and um, oh gosh, I've forgotten the guys, the, the boys' names. He'll kill me. He'll oh, slap me. Oh, it's okay. Me. We don't have to go through. Anyway, all it was of them, it was but... it was a lovely cast, mm-hmm. and I enjoyed it tremendously, and. Um, uh, it, it's an amazing piece because it's so totally a drama and yet you get all these laughs all night long. And you, so often we hear about people going in as replacements getting a limited opportunity right. to work on the role. Mm-hmm. Did you have the 10 days in a room with the stage manager or did you really get a full rehearsal on it? Yeah, I got I – got, well, I got the stage manager. They always put the new people into the show but then, you know um, – it was Gene, wasn't it? Yeah, Gene Sachs came back and, and saw the put in, and mm-hmm. you get great notes. And um, I, I, it was, it was, it was plenty. I, I thought that was, I mean, I had what I needed, and it was interesting because the whole time I was doing Lost in Yonkers, I was also editing the all the footage, all the interviews from my Lucy and Desia home movie because I had been while we were out in L.A. I got the, NBC said we're going to put it on the air in February, and I had to edit that show. At the same time. So I would literally do these dramatic scenes and go sit right behind with my pencil and outline the things and then go home late at night and stay up till 3, 4 o'clock in the morning sometimes deciding what in and out points I wanted for my editor for the <laughs> – it was a crazy time in my life. Wow. Jumping ahead again, The Witches of Eastwick, mm-hmm. which you did in the West End, mm-hmm. the premiere of the musical, a yes. cast that included Maria Friedman, Joanna Riding and Ian McShane. Now – a show set in America, written by Americans, directed by an American, with only one American in a leading role. How did you end up in that show? 
You want the real story? Of I course. think I I can handle the truth. Think I think it's because they wanted to bring Hugh Jackman to America in Oklahoma. And Equity said, "Are you crazy? We don't have a curly here in America that can play Oklahoma." I don't think so. And they said, please, if you let us bring Hugh Jackman, we'll cast one of the witches from the United States. And they said, okay. So I got a chance to go and audition for David Caddick, the tech musical supervisor, and the two uh, authors. And I got the part. And as it turns out, Hugh Jackman didn't come here anyway because he got X-Men or something. But I think that is actually the real reason why there was ever such a discussion. So you Thank go- you, Hugh. You were going to be part of a prisoner exchange. <laughs> so that's kind of what it was. Yes. I remember when I finally saw him in Boy of From Oz, I went backstage and gave him a kiss and I said, thank you. That's for witches. It was a huge production. Huge. Of a new show. Could have been three productions with what they cut. <laughs> we can well, make three more plays. What was, again, you know, the opportunity to do a new show yeah. as you did with their playing our yeah, song. The opportunity exciting. to create a part, right. have all of the team there. What was the process on on Witches of Eastwick and how much was it changing? First of all, it was long. I remember doing – they're playing our song we did in three weeks. This took like three months before we opened it. Hmm. Yeah, it was like April, May, June and we opened on close to my birthday in July. Well, was it a lot of previews or no, just a lot of like in the a, room? like two weeks of previews, three weeks, lots of in the room, lots of hmm. – Lots of stuff. It was a long process and uh, it was a very expensive show. We were going to fly. You know, it was big and Cameron McIntosh, he doesn't stint on his money, you know, and champagne in the, at 4 o'clock in the afternoon for everybody. <laughs> it was, it, there was nothing like it. Uh, let me tell you, it was one of the most interesting experiences I've ever had in my life. Just because of the scale of it? For a thousand reasons. It mm-hmm. really was. It'll be a book of its own if not six chapters. But certainly a show of that scale. There's an expectation that a show like that is going to cross the pond. Yeah, it should have. It should have. It didn't. And I'm not sure really why because certainly there have been better shows and, and well, many worse shows that have done well here on Broadway, <laughs> <laughs> really. And anything could be marketed, you know, and it was a good show. It wasn't a terrible show. It was a good show. Having said that, um, it was a rough, a really rough year in, in London. We had mad cow disease that knocked the tourist trade for a loop and so very few people were actually planning to go there that year. Then there were all kinds of tube strikes where people from outside of London couldn't even get in and I remember just constant something was going on all the time. Then there were these groupies, these witches groupies that would come and see the show 50 times. We got Really fabulous reviews when we opened. We got some fantastic reviews, not not necessarily for Ian. They, I think he got battered the worst. But there were plenty of quotes that this show could – we had enough quotes to run forever. It wasn't making enough money. Hmm. And I also think that the buzz – you know how there's a buzz about shows from those of us who go over there and we see stuff. You bring back, is it worth seeing? Is it worth bringing over? There's a buzz. It didn't create the buzz. And I – this is just my opinion – I was in it, so maybe I was too close to it. But I think it got dumbed down. I think that the script that we started with and the script that was that fabulous movie and the script we started with was so close to the movie that it was brilliant. It had all the darkness and it was super funny uh, and great songs. And little by little, they made it English funny. And I don't know how to say that in any other way except that the English are very good at cartooning Americans and it was a show about America. And you could tell by the costumes and just the, the way it was directed and Eric Schaefer had his hands full. That's all I can tell you. He had his hands full and Cameron likes his toys. He likes to to make decisions and you need a really strong director to keep the train from going off the tracks. I was told that Trevor Nunn, when he works with Cameron, has it in his contract that Cameron is not allowed to come to rehearsals because Cameron has a great eye and he knows when something is not right. Something wrong with that. And Trevor would say, mm-hmm, mm-hmm, and we're, we'll fix it. 
But if you go the next step and someone who's not sure how to fix it tries to fix it, it often gets further and further out of whack and it can never come back again. And I just think that this show took on a certain kind of humor and a certain kind of fun that was okay for a certain kind of people. But the savvier theater goers from here went over there and went, that was fun. They didn't come back with the buzz. Do you know what I'm saying? And then we had to switch theaters, go to a smaller theater. Cameron put tons of his own money into it. I mean, kept putting millions and millions to keep it going, bless his heart. But it had an unusual uh, lifetime over there. It was an unusual life. Coming back from London, you had a very interesting run of looks like four years running. You went down to the Coconut Grove in Miami and did a show there every year. How about that? They weren't a repertory company. No. Now – was this being an overprotective mother because your daughter's down there in school? Or is what was behind this relationship? Well, when I went down the first time, they had tried to get me. Arnold Middleman had sent me a script probably once every nine years. Or, I mean, once for nine years, not every nine years. Once for about nine years. And I either didn't like the script or I wasn't available. We never could work it out. And then I got a script that I really liked. It was an Eduardo Machado play called Once, once Removed. Yeah. And I really liked it a lot. And I said, yes, this will work out great. While I was down there, my daughter was getting ready to pick a college and our director said, well, I went to UM and she should – you know, if this is one of her choices, tell her to come down and I'll show her around. So she ended up going there, long story short, and fate would have it. I ended up getting sent another play that I liked and what was interesting was that it was a place, a safe place to go to try out new works or works that had only been done in one small little other place somewhere and I don't get offered that a lot. And they weren't musicals and that was fun for me to, to, to break away and, and, and work on new stuff, you know, chew on new piece of meat. Some of them were good, some not so good. Um, the last experience was very sad for us, the Sonia Flu experience. Well, the theater was experiencing enormous financial problems, yeah. announced that it was closing. You waged a public campaign at least to keep it open long enough to do that show. Yeah, we tried. Bacardi helped. The two of Not us. Not drinking it, the company itself. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Although. I like to clarify. That's funny. <laughs> I didn't even think about that. That's true in both. No, the company. Yes, I called my buddies over there at Bacardi, and the next day we had a check for $50,000. And thank God. But they, the, the board of directors was already so crazy that they had shut the door to the theater and locked us out for three days, not knowing that we were in this campaign-raising mode. And then all the people we had emailed to help us said, well, we're not going to throw good money after bad. The play's already – the place is closed. It was a disaster. But uh, mm. we did get it open for two weeks and I'm glad for Melinda Lopez because it's a play worth worth doing. Dirty Rotten Scoundrels. Yay! You were cast to replace uh, Joanna Gleason. Mm-hmm. My recollection – is that almost immediately on going into the show, you injured yourself. Yeah, three months in. It was three months in. You'd actually yeah. had – you did get to May, do it June, and long. July. I didn't realize you'd gotten to do it yeah. for that much And then time. it closed like immediately after that, hmm. which they said it would be open through January. So when I hurt my knee, they told me it was a torn meniscus. They said, Dr. Bauman, he knows. Philip Bauman, he's the guy. And he said, look, you know, we've tried putting you out of the show for a week and ice and rest and that's not working. So it looks like arthroscopic surgery. I said, oh, my, I've never been operated on in my life. What does that mean? Well, what? Three weeks, you'll be back doing what you do. Your track is not that big in the show. You'll be fine. You'll get physical therapy. You'll be fine. Two day, I went imme- immediately. I went in immediately for the surgery. They said, the producer said, fine, great, go. Come back soon. We love you. It's no problem. And I hate missing performances. So to me, it was just the worst thing that it could ever happen. But worse than that was getting a call two days later after coming out of surgery that the show was closing in three weeks, mm-hmm. which was almost exactly how much time it would take me to get to just barely being able to go in, much less doing little soft shoes. See, I think the reason I thought it was even shorter is you kept saying to me, give it a little while. Let me get into the show. Oh, yes. And by the time right. you felt right. comfortable enough – that's when you got hurt. Oh, so that's, that's right. why I, I thought it was shorter because I didn't get to see you. That's right. Now, in the little time we have left, I have a couple of key questions I, I want to be sure to ask you. Um, the first 
is we talked very early on about you directing. You produced, directed, and co-wrote a show called An Evening with Lucille Ball with a performer by the name of Suzanne LaRouche. Am I getting it correct? Yes, correct. What is the experience of directing someone playing your mom? A little strange, clearly, a little like Primal Scream Therapy, and a little great because you finally get to tell her what to do. I loved that part. (laughs) And she looks so much like her. Sometimes I really felt I was talking to my mother. But it was something I I took on because it ha- it was like it's there to be done. It has to be done, and I'm the person that needs to do this now. Do what ought to be done by you is my my code, my unity code, and it was uh, it, that was something that ought to have been done by me at that time. Suzanne has been putting this show together for three or four years. She's as good as it gets. Nobody can get my mother, not just the Lucy Ricardo character, but Lucille Ball like this girl does. And the show was almost perfect. It needed a rewrite and it needed a director and it needed a producer. She had run out of money. So Larry and I said, we're going to help. We produced. I tried to get Don Amendolia in to direct it and then he got in the Jane Fonda play. So she said, Lucy, you're my dream director. Please, you've given me such great notes. Just direct it. I went, okay, you're the one who asked. If I'm a lousy director, you suffer. So that's how it came about. It wasn't that I chose to do a play about my mother or write a play or produce a play. She had done all of that already and we came in and just gave it a lift, just made it hopefully better. And now she she's being booked by a Broadway booking agency and uh, going around the country with the show. I'm very mm-hmm. proud. Your parents both passed away in the 80s. And I read that you ultimately looked for a surrogate grandmother for your kids because they didn't know. I don't know about Larry's folks. No, they're gone too. Yeah, um, they were. I am struck by the fact that you lit upon with all of these remarkable people that you've known in your career, June Havoc. It's funny how people come into your life. She was a great friend of my mother's back in the 40s and the 50s. She lived at my mom and dad's house in um, Chatsworth for months on end in the late 40s. And she had moved to Stamford, Connecticut. She she lived in Stamford. And I should have interviewed her for the Lucy Desi documentary, but I didn't know how to get in touch with her in those days. I didn't even know she was still around. And through mutual friends, we met at a party. And then I said, oh, my God, I live 15 minutes from you. I didn't realize, oh, this is wonderful. We became friends. You could not not love June Havoc. She was a force to be reckoned with. And I didn't go searching for a replacement grandparent. It just happened that way. She took my kids on, you know. But fascinating that you raised by a major entertainment – two major entertainment figures um, find a surrogate grandmother in a woman whose own life yes. was so yes. directed by her mother Indeed. who had these dreams of the right. stage. Well, maybe that's, have, you, have you ever analyzed? No, that's actually a very good point because we came from these giant mother shadow figure things. And she just was like my Auntie Mame. And she was an Auntie Mame for my kids because she, she had the heart of a giant and funny – Oh, my God. And she didn't take life so seriously in general. My mother could be funny too. You write it down on a piece of paper, she'll turn it into gold. But think funny and just be in a funny mood. Just be a great pal to hang with and say things that make you pee with laughter. This was June. And I so enjoyed being with her. She was a great teacher and a mentor to me and to my kids. My my daughter, Kate, really took it seriously because she really missed having a granny, you know. And mm. and it was hard to lose her this past year even though I know she was ready to go. Mm. My last question is I noted in your bio that you lecture and your subject is surviving success. <laughs> what does that mean? Well – and lecture seems odd because you know me. I just talk to people. But um, I go out and I, I talk to women, men too, about the balance of trying to have it all because now we know that we can. Women especially know that now you can go out, you can get great jobs, you know, you can have a family, you can have a fabulous job, you can get people to raise your kids, you can do it all. You might not always get paid the same as all the men out there, but for the most part, women are doing really well these days. But it it gets rough when you're trying to do the right stuff for your kids and be home and do all the things you need to do to 
be an Olympic winning mom and do all the things that you need to do to, to be an Olympic winning success in your business, whatever that is, to give the amount of time that it takes to be a success. They, they clash at some point and I've had it happen and I watched it happen with my mother and I saw how it affected my raising of my children and then I had an outcome and how it changed when I changed. And I decided to – when I made the documentary, I learned a lot by asking people about my, my mother and the way she grew up and just to see how did that all come to be. So it's taking the generations and how the circle goes on and it was really how to, how to try to have what you want out of your life but survive it so that there isn't an unhappy ending at the end that's either an alcoholic or a divorce or, or children who are really screwed up, mm-hmm. you know? Normally, as I draw to a close, I think, oh, there are all these things I didn't get to talk about. Unfortunately, in this case, I can call you up. But for the moment, I have to say, Lucy Arnaz, thank you so much for being with us today on Downstage Center. You have no idea how long I've waited to do this with you, Howard. Our engineer for this Downstage Center program is Chad Bernhard. Our researcher is Craig Thompson. Our director of web development is Rob Perry. And our producer is Gail Yankosik. Downstage Center is recorded in the CUNY TV radio studio at the City University of New York's Graduate School of Journalism in Manhattan. Along with this program, all of the educational and media work of the American Theatre Wing is available online, on demand, for free, from americantheaterwing.org. You can follow ATW on Twitter at The Wing and follow me as well on Twitter as H.E. Sherman. You can also declare yourself as one of our fans on Facebook at The American Theatre Wing and be sure to check out our YouTube channel. If you're a regular listener to or viewer of Wing programs, please remember that we are a not-for-profit organization and consider giving us financial support to sustain our work. Just visit our website and click on Support ATW. For Downstage Center in the American Theatre Wing, I'm Howard Sherman. Thanks for listening, and no matter where you live, I hope we'll see you at the theatre.